Amen and amen. Thank you, worship team. You all can be seated here tonight. Whether you are here in a pew, whether you are at home on a couch, I want to welcome you to City Life Church this week in December. Thank you, Tammy, for coming up and sharing for two reasons. One, that worship was so good, I had to get the snot off my face and the tears out of my eyes. And, and two, she was in my notes because I'm preaching from Isaiah tonight. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Isaiah. And she was speaking to what we want to speak to in this new series, which is hope. The sermon series title is Hope is Here, Now, right? Eternal life starts now, as the theologian Dallas Willard used to say. But before I get ahead of myself, I just want to, uh, again, whether you're here, whether you're online, welcome you. And as we look forward to the month of December, maybe you're thinking, which week will I come? Because one, obviously the, the situation going on in our culture, and two, Christmas. Maybe you're traveling. So I just want to let you know, next week, the 12th, we having a special moment in service for our kids and our little ones, Christmas for our children before we dismiss them. The week after that, we're going to have a night that's full of just worship and prayer and praise and a posture of worship. And you can say amen because I know like tonight, this is one of those nights where I'm like, I got a sermon prepped. I've been grinding on this. I've been working on this. But hey, if we just want to sing Psalm, Psalm 91 and I trust you for the rest of the night, I'm cool with that. If you were in the same boat with me, then the 19th will be for you because that is a night of worship and praise and prayer. And as Vanessa was plugging, starting tonight, we're going to have a prayer available after communion. Yes, we're doing communion tonight. So if you didn't grab those elements on the way in, you can grab those back there if you're at home. You can take off and grab them right now. But we've had prayer available on our online platform. You Online, you can click prayer, and at any time a host can pray for you. But here at this altar, we want to make prayer available again, as Vanessa was saying. So after communion tonight, after that last worship song, there's going to be people up here ready to pray for you if you need it. Because how many of you know we all need it? But talking, again, about a proverbial menu of what's coming in December, we are starting this series, Hope is Here. And if you got your Bibles, again, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 6. And if you're, as you turn there, as you swipe there, I was a, an English and art double major at William & Mary. I say that because sometimes I'll reference one. Bit, Wait, I thought you were an English major. Or I thought you were an art major. I was both. I was just trying to avoid mathematics by any means possible. So I was like, man, sign me up for the art, sign me up for the English. <laughs> but as a recovering English major, uh, this time of year, Oxford Dictionary, Merriam-Webster, Dictionary.com, they have what they call their word of the year. And it's often like a commentary on the year that we're coming out of. So I want to say like a half decade ago, hashtags were big. So the word of the year was hashtag. So there's playful words like that. There's philosophical words. Like, like a few years ago, it was post-truth. This idea that there's your truth and her truth. And what is post-truth, right? And then a couple years ago, it was political. There was fake news. Like each year, there's a word that comments on the year we're coming out of. So the word this year, honestly, wasn't very surprising. It's a word that we've heard again and again and again since March. It's, it's been looked up and searched more than ever in history, and it's the word pandemic. Right? With that word pandemic, though, 2020 brought us all kinds of new phrases and ideas and concepts that I'd never before even considered in my day-to-day -day life. I'm talking contact tracing, right? Social distancing, herd immunity, flattening the curve, sheltering in place. Right? The vocabulary of health professionals became my personal vocabulary used week to week. But in a year 
that was defined by these words and these phrases that really carry a weight with them. We wanted to take December and dedicate it to a word that we need to return to again and again and again, and that's hope. The hope we have not in some path forward that's crystal clear, not in some plan coming from Capitol Hill or anywhere else, but in Jesus Christ, a person, Jesus Christ. And you might say, well, we talk about hope all the time. But so often in our culture, when we use the word hope, it's like a wish. Like, I hope COVID is gone this time next year. Or I hope that now the, the Wizards traded for Russell Westbrook, they'll actually be decent next year. Like, in my vocabulary, hope is so often, it's like wishful thinking. But man, when you look at scripture, it shows us that hope in its purest essence is an expectation, an active expectation, not a passive sitting back on your heels expectation, but an active expectation for all that God has promised. It's a trustful looking forward toward the faithfulness of God. And the Advent season that we're in that leads up to Christmas is certainly a season of hope in God's promises, specifically the promise of a coming Savior. But Advent isn't simply four weeks of extended Christmas. It's, it's really a season unto itself. It's one of hopeful waiting, even aching amidst the conditions that made Christmas necessary to begin with. Conditions we've seen this year and in our lives of, of, of division, of depravity, of disease, despair, even death. And this posture of hope-filled waiting it's so important for us, especially in our culture, to return to every Christmas because typically, and if we aren't careful, Christmas can just turn into this holiday blitz that we just blow through. And we can set up our celebration, and it's a celebration of Christ coming to us, and it comes with an annual certainty because he already came. Every year, we are certain that, guess what, Christ came, and we're celebrating that. But you know, for centuries Countless generations leading up to his birth, God's people were in waiting, both active and anxious waiting, sometimes hopeful, sometimes seemingly hopeless, because their waiting wasn't done in some waiting room with coffee and couches. No, their waiting was done in exile. For generations, prophets have prophesied to the Israelites that if you continue in your celebration of sin, right, bold sin, rebellion before God, then you're going to be violently uprooted and taken into exile. And despite their warnings again and again, that's exactly what happened. And yet for generations, prophets also spoke, hopefully, of a coming Messiah who would bring restoration. And so the exile happened. And yet for generation and generation and generation, all these generations passed without the promised Messiah's fulfillment. Like we have to be mindful that like this Christmas season, all I have to do with my Bible is open it up right here and there's one page to turn from Malachi to Matthew and then voila, right? Like Jesus is here. But we have to remember that this one page in our Bibles between Malachi and Matthew, it represents almost 500 years of waiting, not to mention the waiting that had already been happening in the Old Testament while in exile. Generation generation after generation passed and the Messiah hadn't come. How many people let go of hope? How many let go of their faith in these prophecies? We don't know. But you know, for us, we can remain enchanted by Christmas because it comes every 12 months, right? Every 365 days, right? It's here before us. But can you imagine the pull 
towards disenchantment as the promised Messiah seemed less and less a reality with every century and every passing generation. And I share this because in life, we'll all feel a pull toward disenchantment from time to time. Where waiting on God can sometimes feel like a wasted life. Where brokenness can sometimes sparks feelings of hopelessness. Where division can make you feel despair or maybe a diagnosis makes you disenchanted and disillusioned. Maybe that's how you feel now, especially after the year we just had. And there's that voice that says, give it up, right? Even if God exists, he clearly doesn't care for your situation. Where's the proof, right? Where, where, where's the, the source of your hope in this crazy season? And tonight I want to tell you, if that's you, you aren't alone in those thoughts. Those thoughts are wrestled with in this book by people who wrote it. They've been wrestled with by people who follow Christ throughout Christianity. But tonight, if that's you, I also want to share with you, Christmas, this Christmas season is for you. I mean, if there's ever a year where we can just shut down the debate of when it's appropriate to, to start sparking the Christmas music and throw the Christmas tree up. Man, y'all could have done it in September this year. And I'd be like, with the year we have, right, you want to start listening to some hope-filled Christmas music and start celebrating Christ's coming in this crazy, constantly changing year to be able to celebrate our unchanging hope, man, that's powerful. The Old Testament prophets, though, again, they spoke hope-filled messages about this coming Messiah that we celebrate in retrospect to a people that were exiled, to a people that were losing hope. These people thought, man, our nation couldn't fall. Our temple's going to stand forever. God's never going to leave or forsake us. And, and he didn't, but it certainly felt like it as they were taken into exile. And yet there they were. And here we are. Again, at the tail end of a year that has tried and tested us in unique ways, both as a world and as a nation, and in unique ways for each person sitting in this room. But I believe that these prophetic messages, the ones we're going to look at tonight, they still speak to each one of us in each one of our situations. And tonight I want to consider two pictures of prophetic hope handed to us by Isaiah. And when I say pictures, I mean pictures because he uses images. See, Time and time again, the prophets would use imagery, whether it was Ezekiel acting stuff out, Jeremiah using props and, and also acting stuff out, or, or like many of them did, using word pictures and imagery. It's something that God does throughout Scripture, something that Jesus did in his teaching, and, and I think it's deeply intentional and meaningful. And again, that's not just because I'm, I'm a recovering art major and I love to paint and make pictures. Aristotle once said, the soul does not think without a picture. Whether you've heard that quote or not, you've probably heard it said that a picture is worth a thousand words, and that's not far from reality. Pictures, we remember pictures long after words leave us. Scientists say that 90% of the, the information retained in our brains is visual. Like we, we think using imagery. We remember using imagery. It's been proven that we learn better when we use imagery. So it's almost like God, who created our brains, knew how to best communicate, and the prophets again and again use imagery. So tonight I want to look at two of these images of hope. And they've resonated with me personally over the past years, and my prayer coming into this sermon is that what's resonated personally with me will resonate spiritually and practically with each person here as the Holy Spirit uses it. Because it's not something I'm making up, it's, it's here, in, here in Scripture. And may it fill us to the brim with hope again. And the first is in Isaiah 6. It's a picture of a stump. See, Isaiah 6, it starts with Isaiah's calling, one of, one of the coolest passages in the entire book, but that's another sermon for another time. 
the back end of chapter 6 is, is when Isaiah begins to get the details of his calling as a prophet and what he would prophesy. Again, of Israel's coming judgment because of their celebration of boastful and blatant sin. And how Israel would be struck down and the whole country would become a wasteland. It says in verses 11 and 12 of Isaiah 6, it says, Isaiah said, Lord, how long will this go on? And he replied, until their towns are empty, their houses are deserted, and the whole country is a wasteland. Until the Lord has sent everyone away and the entire land of Israel lies deserted. You know, this all speaks to, again, the coming time of exile for, for God's people in that generation. Now, unlike the Israelites, we this year, we haven't been exiled. We haven't been sent away. Honestly, in 2020, we've experienced kind of the opposite. We've been told to stay home as much as possible. Even, again, that term, shelter in place. So in an ironic twist, we've spent more time than ever maybe at home and yet so much of our lives feel displaced. Our schedules have been turned on their heads, if not eliminated. A lot of our routines have been obliterated. Again, we've been staying in place and alike, but our whole lives this year, I don't know if I'm just talking to myself here, feel displaced, exiled from our norms and our routines. Yet Isaiah chapter 6, it ends with some of my favorite words in Scripture. Israel's stump will be a holy seed. What do you think of when you see a stump? For so long, I look at a stump, I think, well, that's a dead tree. <laughs> that's somewhere a tree used to be. But I open talking about new words and new phrases, and I learned a, a new word this month, and it's coppicing. Anybody know what this is? Yeah, me neither. But coppicing is the, it, well, actually, coppice is the regrowth that can come out of a stump. And producing a system of harvesting growth from carefully cut stumps is called coppicing. It's like pruning on steroids. And it's far from the, the norm, but it's becoming a thing with Christmas tree farming, where trees are, are harvested in ways that allow the tree to come back the next year. Coppicing means that, that when you cut down a tree, you aren't killing it. You're cutting it back in a way that the stump will live on to produce again and again. You know, Jesus gives us this image in the Gospel of John that God is a gardener and he prunes us. Most landscapers and professionals, and I worked as a landscaper for a couple years in college, you quickly learn that when we prune plants, bushes, trees, we're way too timid. Like, oh, here's a dead branch over here. Here's a couple inches with a dead leaf here. No, when you're pruning a tree or a bush, you're cutting it down so often all the way to the trunk, especially these beautiful crepe myrtles we have here in Virginia. If you want it to become a tree that, that arches over the street, you got to be aggressive in those early years, cutting it back down all the way to the stump. Likewise, God doesn't just remove sin and dead branches from our lives. There's times where God might remove something seemingly good, a ministry, right? A relationship, right? Maybe you're moving from one place to another, and he's setting up the stage for more growth in his sovereignty. And in his sovereignty, too, even if God isn't the one even doing the pruning, like this pandemic that comes out of our broken, fallen creation, he in his sovereignty can use it. Even when all that's left feels like a stump. God is a sovereign gardener that's in the business of treating stumps like seeds of coppicing. And you see with this practice of coppicing, of cutting a tree all the way down to the stump, but carefully so there can be more growth, it's also about what happens underneath the ground where we can't see. The expansion of roots that happens when you cut it down and let it grow all the way back up is enormous. 
It makes the ground like impervious to erosion and, and, and it makes flooding almost impossible. I share that because Pastor John Ware, if you didn't hear his sermon last week, go back and listen to it. It was an amazing sermon about being satisfied in Jesus. Just that, Jesus, right? Ultimately, Jesus, being rooted in Jesus. And, and, he, and I, I think the title was something about being satisfied in Jesus. So the song that was stuck in my head and I listened to on the way home, it's a song called uh, Satisfied in You by the Sing Team. It's based on Psalm 42. But the bridge of that song says, let my sighs give way to songs that sing about your faithfulness. Let my pain reveal your glory as my only real rest. Let my losses show me all I truly have is you, right? Let my losses show me that all I truly have is you. See, the enemy would love for our losses to pile up this year and beyond that until we lose hope. But you know what backfires when it strips away everything that's been distracting us so we can remember what is our unshakable foundation, what our hope is truly rooted in, which is Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone of our faith, our hope, and our lives. So the stump that looks dead it's a seed. That thing in your life that you're ready to give up on, it still carries a seed of hope. If it's rooted in God, if it's rooted in God's purposes, if it's rooted in God's promises, there's always hope. What looks barren will still bear fruit. What looks forsaken will still be fruitful. But maybe you're asking, what does this picture of a stump have to do with Christmas? Where are you going with this? Isaiah uses the same imagery in Isaiah 11 to prophetically point to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. He says, out of the stump of David's family, some translations say Jesse, David's father, same family tree. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And we know when we read the genealogies in Matthew and Luke, that it is indeed out of the stump of David's family and the branches of his eventual family tree that Joseph would come pledge himself to Mary, who would have the miraculous virgin birth of Jesus Christ. But you know, another woman in the Christmas story becomes miraculously pregnant that we often forget about. Not a virgin birth, but almost the opposite, a birth from a seemingly barren womb. And it's Mary's cousin, Elizabeth. You have a friend up in Brooklyn who just had his first kid, and he's trying to get me to do some art for him where, where he and his wife will be in the trunk and, and, and his son's name will be over here and the, and the way it's designed, he'll be able to add branches to that art with each kid they have. But Elizabeth's family tree, for all intents and purposes, was a stump. And Luke 1 says that she and her husband were so well advanced in their years that a child must have felt like an expired dream. And a verse that challenges me every single Christmas season, ever since the revelation was dropped on me, it's seemingly irrelevant. In Gabriel's conversation with Mary about the virgin birth of Jesus, it's in Luke chapter 1 and it's verses 36 through 37. Mary has, Gabriel shared with Mary that she's going to bear Jesus. She asks, how? You know, relevant question. And as he's encouraging her and stirring up her faith, he says in verse 36, did you know that your cousin Elizabeth conceived a son old as she is? Everyone called her barren and here she is six months pregnant. Nothing you see is impossible with God. Luke says in verse 24 of the same chapter that when Elizabeth became pregnant, that she went into seclusion for the first five months of her pregnancy. Now, I've, I've dug into this. I've studied this. This wasn't a common cultural thing. Historians don't really offer up an, an explanation as to why, 
Certainly in our culture, it's almost unfathomable when you're sharing as much as possible. But it's quite possible that the joy of this miraculous good news was so good, she just wanted to savor it with just her, her husband, and God for for those initial months. But for whatever the reason was, she stepped into seclusion until her sixth month of pregnancy. So that means there were people who didn't even know she was pregnant or what was going on that were still calling her barren, and she's five or six months pregnant. Verse 36 said that everybody had been calling her barren, right? And when I read Luke 1, 36, I'm challenged each year again and again to ask the question in each new year and each new season, what am I calling barren that God wants to see bear fruit? What am I calling barren that God wants to bless? What am I calling expired that God still has expectation for? And this is why the second picture that Isaiah uses that I cling to for hope, this picture of the eagle in Isaiah 40, verse 37, is so meaningful to me personally. In that picture of an eagle, it says, those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. And again, maybe you're saying, how does this connect? Let me explain. You know, when I was a kid, maybe you can relate. I was being educated in the 90s, right? When I was a kid, bald eagles were endangered, almost extinct. They were about to go the way of the dodo bird. And in America, where where the bald eagle is our national symbol, that's newsworthy. That's a big deal. When America adopted the bald eagle as its symbol, there were a quarter million or so in the nation. Come the 1960s, there were about 400 left on the planet. And so when I was in grade school, they were under protection as an endangered species. So in my brain, right, I file the bald eagle away as endangered, right, very rare, right, going the path of the dinosaurs. Now fast forward over a decade later. I'm in my early 20s. I'm commuting from Newport News to my job in Williamsburg, just listening to music, vibing, going down 64. I look up, and I see what looks to be a bald eagle, right? Big bird of prey, white head, brown body. I'm thinking, no, right? There's no way. A bald eagle here in Williamsburg, I was going nuts. It was a struggle to keep my eye on the road because I'm thinking, how is this possible? I couldn't fathom it. And maybe you're looking at me right now like, You're a big dummy, right? Like, duh. Well, that's the face on my coworkers' faces when I I walked into work thinking this was front page news, that I'd seen a a, a bald eagle. And because you know what my coworkers knew, that bald eagles were taken off the endangered species list in the late 90s, right? They've since rebounded. I've seen many since then, but that was the first one I've seen, and it blew my mind. But here's the thing. My thinking that they were nearly extinct and endangered, I was operating from an expired and flawed perspective. We see a similar case with Elizabeth. People were calling her barren. People were calling her womb extinct. They were operating from a flawed perspective. They saw a barren stump, but God saw a stump that was a seed, a tree that was yet to bear fruit. So again, where are there things in your life, perspectives in your life that need an infusion of hope again? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's your job, your job search, your finances. I don't know what it is for you, but if we're going to continue in this theme of being transparent from the pulpit these past few weeks, this is something I've, I've meditated on for a long time, journaled about, preached to myself. Because how many of you know you might not be ordained to preach from a pulpit. God ordains you to preach and speak the word of God over your life yourself, right? To meditate on God's word, speak it over your situation, speak it over your life. I've preached this to myself over and over again, and I've had to. Because forget the pandemic. Forget the divisive election. 
Right? This hits home because of the battles that Steph and Raj are going through. The fighting they're doing at home, their health, diagnosis of, of degenerative and chronic conditions and surgery after surgery after surgery. You know, Chris led that song with the, like, the add-on to Psalm 91 where it says, Jesus, I trust you with all my heart and all I am. And I've had to ask, God, am I trusting you with all my heart and all I am and, and all I'm going through? Right, because can I trust that what's diagnosed as degenerative and permanent can be used in God's divine providence and his plan? That what has been deemed barren or, or, or broken can bear fruit. That, that, that pain isn't without hope. That there's reason for hope. And I've never arrived at, at hopelessness, right? But I, I do sometimes drift into like hopelessness's distant cousin that's a little more acceptable, which is cynicism, right? It is what it is. Right? What I see now is probably what I'm going to continue in. Right? It's degenerative. It might even get worse. Right? Just that cynicism is a little more acceptable. If I said I drifted into hopelessness, you'd be like, let's pray for him right now. But cynicism, you're like, oh, yeah, I understand that. Right? Our culture is full of cynicism. But as I drift into that, I have to be mindful that that so quickly will displace my hope and my faith in Jesus Christ. And when I drift that direction, this imagery speaks to me again. Right? Because when you read Isaiah 40 and you start in verse 28, He's replying to a people, the Israelites, who are saying either, either God has forgotten about us or he just plain doesn't care. And we see Isaiah's answer starts in verse 28 where he says, have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired and young men will fall in exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. You know, in the year 2014, a photographer captured about a half dozen images of a crow riding on an eagle's back. It was kind of like ridiculously ominous and it went viral immediately because people are thinking, what, crows are plotting world domination and they've learned how to like fly on eagles' backs and that's going to be like their vehicle? Like, is this an Alfred Hitchcock sequel? Is this David Godwin's worst dream as he's afraid of everything with wings? Like, what is this? It went viral. It was everywhere. And biologists, they didn't bat an eye. They gave a quick explanation because as, as a large bird of prey, right, eagles get harassed nonstop by birds of all species. It just so happens that, I don't know the science behind it, maybe I should have read more, crows can get on their back, right? Crows know how to do this and they can peck and they can scratch and they can pester the eagle. But time out. I think it's worth pausing to consider that, that God compares us to eagles in Isaiah 40. Oh, it's glorious. Oh, you can rise on wings like eagles, but, but the enemy's gonna attack. There's gonna be trouble. Jesus promises it in John 16. He says, there's gonna be trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Right? But they, maybe this is ironic in a series called Hope is Here, but there's going to be troubles in 2021 too. It's how we handle them and what we do that is so key. And, and what the eagle does is so key and crucial to me. Because why didn't the eagle react to the crow? I mean, you sit up there. Yeah, he's chilling. <laughs> he's just flying with that crow on his back. I'm like, dude, I'd be pecking at it, be doing some 360s, some Top Gun stuff, Right? But the eagle doesn't respond by deviating from its course or fighting with the crow. Doesn't waste his time or energy on the crow. 
What the eagle does is it simply opens its wings a little differently and starts elevating higher and higher until the eagle can breathe, but the crow can't. And ultimately, the crow has to detach and go somewhere else because it can't breathe. And the lesson this teaches me as a proverbial eagle from Isaiah 40 is stop focusing on the crows and start focusing on Christ again. That's how we elevate. That's how we rise above. Stop focusing, juice, on what feels hopeless and focus on the source of your hope. Stop focusing on what's shaking your faith and fix your eyes again, as it says in Hebrews, on the author and finisher of your faith. Not as some kind of denial of reality, but this reminder of the reality that I don't see with my eyes every day that's still true. You know, if I could have the the worship team come up, we're going to prepare to get into communion, but I got more to say. (laughs) See, 2020 brought a, a small army of crows, legitimate cares and concerns that can become a weight on our back. And again, there's nothing wrong with having those cares and concerns, wanting to care for your family, concerns for your spouse, whatever it may be. But those things that climb on our back, sometimes they can displace our faith and our hope. We carry legitimate, you know, fears for health, for safety, relationships, finances, futures. These are all crows that might settle in on our back. And if we aren't careful, these legitimate cares and concerns can displace our central, our permanent hope in God. So how do we ascend, right, like eagles and get them off our back? The amplified version of Isaiah 40, 31 reads, I love the Amplified. Sometimes it digs deeper into the Hebrew or the Greek text. It says, those who wait for the Lord, who expect and hope in him, will gain new strength and renew their power. They will lift up their wings and rise up close to God like eagles rising toward the sun. Maybe like an eagle, right, elevating until the crow detaches from his back. How do we elevate? This passage says, hey, we put our hope in God again. We stop focusing on the crows, start focusing on Christ, or as this translation says, we wait for the Lord. And maybe you say this sounds so ethereal. Trust me, it's practical when you make it personal. And I thank God that he didn't give us calculus. Again, I'm not a big fan of math or hoops to jump through, but he opened that door to communion through Jesus Christ. May we remember that unlike God's Old Testament people, we no longer have to wait in Advent for Christ to come. No, he's come, and he's coming again. But in the meantime, in the present, he's opened the door for us to have communion with him, relationship with the creator of the universe. And he's extended this invitation in Matthew 11 that is so timely for the season we've just had as a church and as individuals. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, come, come, you come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Come on, may we be a people that RSVP to this invitation every day, that cast off the crows and the burdens and those things that would threaten to displace our hope and set our hope and focus on Jesus again. You see, the word Advent in the original language, it means coming, but in our Advents, In our Christmases, we get to not just look forward to Jesus coming again. We get to look back to the fact he came as Savior. He's going to come again as King, but he came as as Savior. He died for us. We get to remember his, his life, his death, and his resurrection that purchases the grace and mercy we praise him for tonight. And tonight, it being the, the first weekend of the month, we have a special opportunity to remember Jesus the way he commanded to, which is through communion. 
He's Emmanuel, right? As we celebrate in this season, God with us. He's also our Savior because he came and he took on flesh to die for us. So if we could take the communion elements, as we partake in communion, we should remember what Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians. First, it says that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes let's drink of the cup worship but as we take communion tonight as the church has done since its its beginning may we remember the hope we have that when Jesus said it is finished at the cross nobody can speak it is finished over your life we have eternal life through the grace and mercy that flows through the cross in Jesus Christ that when Jesus demonstrated it's over by conquering death in the grave nobody can point to your life and say it's over and God, tonight we speak to you our praises. We come to you with our worship. God, we, we close this service in a posture of response, in a posture of making room for you, and in a posture of prayer. We're going to continue with prayer after this, but God, we, we praise you in this moment for what we just celebrated. That Jesus Christ didn't see equality with you as something to be used to his own advantage, but he humbled himself, took on flesh, was born as we celebrate at Christmas, not just so he could chill, but so that he could go to the cross, die for us, and extend the grace and mercy we celebrate tonight. And it says in Philippians 2 that he's now been given the name above every name. 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. So we confess it again tonight. God, we confess it again that we trust you. God, that we put the full weight of our lives on you, that we put you at the center of our hearts and our minds and our hearts. <laughs> In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.